Hi, this is Dr. Shane, and this is the podcast of Triple R's Einstein Agogo, a weekly radio show exploring the wonders of science and its impact on the world. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Sunday. Hope you enjoy the podcast, and feel free to get in touch with us via Einstein Agogo's Twitter account or Facebook page. Good morning, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Einstein Go Go. I'm Dr. Shane. Thanks so much for tuning in to Triple R. We have an hour of science for you now, of course. In the studio with me is Chris KP. Good morning, buddy. Hello there. How are you this day? <laughs> okay. Good. Good. It's a bit too enthusiastic oh, for sorry. my liking. <laughs> I'll dial it back. Yeah, yeah just, you know, it's Sunday morning. Uh, it's wet. It's yes. Melbourne. Yes. Yeah. These things happen. are true. Yeah. <laughs> Also in the studio is my good friend, Dr. Sarah Best. Good morning, Sarah. Good morning. It's a pleasure to be here again. It's great to have you in every now and then, you know, when I'm, I was going to say desperate, when I'm in need <laughs> of another host, because we have strict rules. You know, if you're slightly sick, get out. Mm. And mm. Uh, we've got a few sick people in the team at the moment, and uh, they don't have COVID. They just have the sniffles. Just sick. But um, there's a lot of stuff going around. So uh, we don't bring sick people into the studios, which is, you know, you're not sick, are you? Of course not. No. <laughs> I'm oh, fine, I'm fine. That did not sound convincing. There was some hesitation <laughs> yeah. there. I had to think about it for a second. <laughs> Just sit a little closer to this giant HEPA filter. Uh, anyway, folks, we have a big show ahead for you today. We're going to start off with some news. Then we have a couple of guests coming in. We've been talking about uh, crocodiles and a whole of chemicals that I don't understand. We'll work out what's going on there. Sarah's excited about it because she understands the chemical side. But I only Yeah. Yeah, immunology. It's great stuff. And then we have the TBCR from uh, Victoria University coming into the studio. Uh, still on active research. I've been on the show many times before, actually, um, but not in this role. So that will be cool. We're going to be learning about the sustainability of the labs out there, which is fantastic. Uh, we hmm. don't hear about that very often. And then uh, Chris KP is going to tell us something. I'm not sure what. Me either. Yeah, well, you got 40, It'll be a you got you got forty minutes to prepare, pal. Excellent. Let's start off with some news, though. Chris, what have you got for us? Uh, look, I stumbled upon a uh, an interesting article, uh, which well, was interesting because it was about bears, but not really about bears. So let me ask you this, both of you: when you know, for, for what is the most topical, or if you like, most popular risk for developing blood clots? For developing blood clots, yeah. airplanes, yeah. This oh, is, really? I mean, it's you know, it's one of those things that for, there was a there was years there where it was yeah. the great fear. Yeah, you were going to get a blood oh, yeah. if you got DVT, on a DVT, yeah, DVT on, on yeah. a long haul flight, and that's a real thing. That's a yeah. true thing. I used to freak out just flying to Canberra. Oh wow, just because you landed in Canberra or for some other reason. <laughs> <laughs> that's fair enough. Though. I understand the problem, uh, but so that yes, yeah, so the and the thing if you think about it, a really hardcore long haul flight, it's like fourteen hours. Yeah, it's fourteen hours. It's not good. It's a long time, but it's less than a day. Picture this. Another mammal, that is bears, hibernate for months. They yeah. have basically are largely immobile for huge periods of time. They don't no, get blood clots. No DBT? Apparently not. Apparently not. Apparently not. So here's the interesting thing. Very interesting. So these researchers went out and they took blood samples from, and I, I didn't go into the middle of how they did this, from bears. <laughs> hibernating bears. Well, hibernating and not hibernating. So think about that. You're sneaking up on a bear. Yeah. It's better to sneak up when it's asleep or when it's awake. I think I've seen that cartoon. It <laughs> exactly. never goes well. Yeah, it never ends well. But they yeah. got samples, and what they found is that there's a particular protein uh, associated with platelets that the, the bears didn't have, um, especially when they were hibernating. It's a protein called HSP47, okay. and they didn't have much, if any, of it when they were hibernating, which is interesting. So then they got some mice, knocked out the protein, and those mice basically um, had fewer clots. So it starts to look more and more like this. This is associated with clotting, and bears don't have, apparently. They also did tests on pigs shortly after they'd given birth, because if you ever see a sow after giving birth, she doesn't move much either. A lot of lying around being attacked by piglets. Um, right. And they had lower levels of HSP-47 as well. But here's the really interesting thing. That makes it sound like you can adapt and reduce the production of, the, of, the, uh, of, of this particular protein. If you're a pig, or a mouse, <laughs> or a bear... Here's the cool thing, though. People who have had who are um, comparatively immobile because of an injury, like a spinal cord injury or something, they also stop producing HSP-47. Oh, wow. Yeah. So how cool is that? So it looks like there's a particular protein associated with platelets and therefore with clotting that the removal, which doesn't stop you having clots per se, but it stops you getting bad clots. If you're like, you have a clotting capacity still, which you need. Yeah, you need But that. you don't have blood clots appearing in places they shouldn't be. That's apparently the case anyway. Um, so they don't know yet, uh, and they're not, not sure what to do with this yet, but basically if there's a way of turning this thing on or off, what a fantastic thing to be able to do. Please note, the advice at this point 
is not just sit around <laughs> for weeks on end <laughs> if you're getting on a plane, um, yeah. unless you're a bear. Yeah, I think most of us who've got teenagers know that the time yeah. that can be spent sitting around well, by a teenager is comparable to a long-haul flight. I thought of that. I thought maybe they should be taking blood samples from teenagers yeah. if only to wake them up. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and I've got to say, every time you say HSB, I'm getting just a little hungry. Oh, sorry about that. Is that, yeah. Is yeah. that a thing? I, <laughs> it's a known phenomenon. Um, whether or not, I don't know where, what the H and the S and the P stand for. I'm assuming it's not the same abbreviation. I'm assuming it's not anyway. Surely it's heat shock protein. I, I, I'm assuming well, so. Surely. Yeah. Yeah. But that's <laughs> that's where my brain goes. That's nowhere near as much fun though, is it? What are you talking about? <laughs> I love the fact that Sarah can just rip these terms I'm just, out. I'm just thinking that, yeah, but, uh, you know, but a civil is also heat shocked <laughs> and has protein. It's just getting more confusing. Yeah, I mean, we've got one that, near my house. We've got the best kebab shops around. Um, sadly, though, it hasn't entered the 20, 20th century yet because you still have to pay cash. I love that. That's and fantastic. Like, I don't carry cash, but this is good for me. It's good for my health because <laughs> I walk past this kebab shop regularly and think I could do a kebab for breakfast. Yeah. And then yeah. I look and go, I've got no cash. Yeah. And so it's sort of self-limiting. Maybe that's why they're doing it. They care, man. Uh, <laughs> I'm not sure about that. <laughs> anyway, uh, anyway, well, this protein sounds good. Uh, yeah. Need to get it tuned down, I guess, at certain times. That's the thing. So, yeah. you know, post-surgery. Yeah. Not during surgery. Well, this is, this is the trick. I, mean, I guess, I guess they, it, it sounds – I'm still not completely sure of the – I mean, the pathways – uh, there's nothing that I read that made it clear to me. I don't know. You know something different in terms of the detail of that, because that's exactly yeah. right. This is there for a reason. So you can't take it away and go, oh, well, you know, <laughs> never I d- mind. I just want to see flight attenders walking up, up and down the aisle. HSP? HSP, anybody? <laughs> HSP removal. HSP removal. I'll take yes. HSP from you. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> little, little, little tray, little white little tray. Little tray of white tablets. Oh. Yeah. That's, see, that's normally reserved for first class. Little- <laughs> They're probably already doing it. Yeah. <laughs> Expensive we just don't know about yeah. We just don't know about it. It's behind the curtain. You cannot go through that curtain. That's great. Oh, that reminds me of a Seinfeld episode. Anyway, Sarah, you have been working your butt off there at WeHi doing amazing things, and some new work is coming out. Tell us all about it. We have some exciting new work out as a preprint, Shane. Pre-print. Very new. So not peer-reviewed yet, but it's out in the world because we want everyone to know about it. So you've gone out. Let's just unpack this a little bit for our audience. A preprint is where a bunch of scientists say we're so good mm. we're not even going to wait for review we're just going to put it out there as though it's real does it ever go wrong oh that's a good question <laughs> I mean, yeah, cause, cause come they, back to me well, in six months well because shane's right it's like you, you're confident in the work and you're excited yeah. about it so you put it out there does it does it ever just turn out to be utter rubbish and you go oh, we shouldn't have said anything yeah you'll be fine obviously well that's just... the thing because you don't you can't print retractions or corrections for yeah, preprints and you annoying. kind of have to be following the article so it is the sort like of thing it. where you need to kind of be on top of it. Yeah. But oh, people are starting to, to cite preprint. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah. All these, these simple issues, and it's yeah. really it's the first version of your manuscript as well. Um, so your team's looked at it, some mentors have read it. Yeah. Um, okay. We've presented it at conferences, so we know people are interested in it. Yeah. But and it didn't not, get destroyed at the conferences either. Like, it's that's not been destroyed. Because no. there was a big hoo-ha yeah. with the Australian Research Council two years ago, I think now, where anyone who'd listed a preprint in their applications was just deemed ineligible, um, which was really inappropriate because, like, you, you wow. can you can list that you were on triple R with it, but you, you list an actual sort of something closer to a publication, all of a sudden, whammo, you're out. And they've, they've addressed this now because there was a huge backlash, um, rightfully mm. so, because yeah. I think, you know, scientists working with other scientists sometimes need to communicate as fast as possible. And we, we've seen this in particular in regards to climate scientists. You know, we do not want to be waiting extraordinary periods of time for reviews from journals so that just some of them are frankly just out there to make money and take you know a year to get back to you. that's and for students it's not good enough well a year is a really decent amount of time now for <laughs> yeah. a, a big publication so a lot of preprints that we've been looking at and speaking to authors on have been in preprint for two years wow and now they're coming out in nature and sell yep. and you know we know that these are exceptional pieces of work but if they weren't in preprint two years ago, we wouldn't have known those advances. Yeah. So I think it is, yeah. it's a balance, but yeah. I think it is important to get it out there. So what have you put out there? All right, so what have yeah. we done? Mm. So um, an interest of my lab is looking at the heterogeneity of glioblastoma. 
Right, so, so that's how, how similar all this particular type of cancer is. So this is a type of brain cancer. Brain cancer. Yep. And when we're thinking about heterogeneity, we're thinking um, tumours aren't all, or not all tumours, are exact clones. All the tumour cells are exactly the same. Right. So there's actually a lot of heterogeneity, which means like lots of different mm. types of, lots of flavours of tumour cells within the one tumour. Right. And this is a big... Um, is really important in glioblastoma because patients who have increased heterogeneity actually are found to have poorer survival outcomes. Is that because the sort of specific drug sort of attraction that you do on one cell type won't work for the others? Exactly. Right. So when we're, well, for glioblastoma, we're only really giving them temozolomide chemotherapy. Right. And so that can impact some populations and let the others grow right. out. Yep. So we're really interested in how many different flavours of tumour cells are there and, and how are they interacting with each other and how are they interacting in the tumour microenvironment. So the tumours mm. aren't just mm. by themselves on a, a blank table. They're intertwined with immune cells and vasculature and stromal cells. So we really want to see spatially how these different flavours of glioblastoma tumour cells are um, interacting. Okay. So uh, something that we've been performing in the lab is spatial transcriptomics. And so that allows us to identify all of the genes that a single cell is expressing and see where that single cell is in space in the tumour. I see. That's wild. I've always been a bit critical of the, uh, the bio people that put everything in a blender. And then, <laughs> you, know, you, you know what I mean? Like it's, all, yeah. it's in there somewhere. But if you don't know where, you don't know its function either, right? Exactly. Yeah. And, and if we're thinking about flavours, you know, you can make a, a berry smoothie and yes. not know that there was a couple yeah. of bananas and a strawberry in there. Yeah, this, like, this so. happens to me all the time. I feel like yeah. tumour smoothie is not going to catch on. No. Uh, yeah. <laughs> that's, that's just me. So, you, so you, can, you can identify the cell types and, their, and the genetics of them in space. Exactly. Wow. And mm. And so we can see, um, and I have to say, this is... This is bioinformatics, so this goes beyond yep. what I can do as a biologist. And, and a big part of my lab is multidisciplinary research, and yep. um, I co-lead the lab with Saskia Freytag, a bioinformatician, and Jim Whittle, a neurooncologist. And so there's a lot of all of these backgrounds that's important in interpreting the data. Well. And so what we've found is that these different flavours of glioblastoma cells, they actually sit in different neighbourhoods or niches quite independently, and, um, and they actually interact with different types of immune cells in those different neighbourhoods. Wow. Huh. So the spatial architecture of the tumour is really important, and especially when we're starting to think about applying these contemporary treatments like immunotherapy, yeah. where we want the immune cells to be interacting with the different tumour cells. But now we know a bit more about these neighbourhoods and um, the different types of glioblastoma cells that are more uh, amenable to that type of therapy. That's wild. Presumably these different neighbourhoods have different growth rates and different types of interaction with the brain as well, right? Exactly. And this is kind of blowing out yeah. like the next, 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 next pieces of research, really to understand these different neighbourhoods. Well, this is what, and this is all the work that uh, Kerry Bickmore's um, fund and so forth helps support. Is that right? Yes. So yeah. our lab was established with the Carrie's Beanies for Brain Cancer yeah. philanthropic yeah. funding. Yeah, I remember yeah. when you first came on and talked to, about that. That was that was wild and a huge accolade for you and your team to to be able to get that support from 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 that program. And you know, it's, it's amazing how many times philanthropic donations do what government funding doesn't yeah. yeah which is great well um t very worthy of a preprint. Oh, i think so i'm excited yeah well worth the risk yeah yeah <laughs> and it's something that, you know if nature rejects it tough you know tell that's their problem right <laughs> you're right though this, but this is the sort of stuff that you don't want to be waiting two years no. for this information to come out yeah and if the preprint scenario wasn't there i mean generally you wouldn't go and present it at conferences because you wouldn't want to share the information prior to publication because other people can sort of get in front exactly. of the queue but with the preprint out you can do that that gives you this sort of a bit it's like a it's like a version of a patent isn't it? it's like a provisional patent where you say okay you know we put this out there we own it it's ours yep. still has to be judged but you know, we're I, reckon sure. the, exactly. I reckon the whole preprint idea puts the pressure back on the publishers. Mm. It's like, hi, we're just putting this out there. If you want it, come and talk to me. But it's out there. Uh, I think that'd be great. Yep. Yeah. yeah. I love that. Wouldn't hurt to put a bit of 
pressure on this button because I think it's a... <laughs> anyway, uh, we're going to take a break for some music, folks. And when we come back, we'll be speaking to our first guest today about uh, some of the value you can get out of crocodiles. I want to know if the hand goes down the crocodiles. Right? Like, this is like the bear. <laughs> <once>. the bear. <laughs> yeah. You know, like, you, do you send the, just the PhD students to do the bear work? Or is it... Can anyone do it? Well, PhD students are easily replaced. So, yes, uh, yeah. <laughs> Chris, you're a, you're a credit to your field. <laughs> <laughs> All right, uh, we'll be back in a minute, folks. You're listening to Einstein and Go Go on Three Triple R. Triple R. Welcome back, people. You are listening to Einstein and Go Go in the studio. With us now is PhD candidate Scott Williams from the Department of Biochemistry and Biochemistry and Chemistry <laughs> at Latrobe's Institute for Molecular Science at Latrobe University. Scott, welcome to Triple R. Oh, thanks for having me. It's great to have you in here. Now, you, uh, well, your lab that you work in there is uh, focused on aspects of the innate immune system. Tell us the innate immune system. What do we mean by that? Yeah, so your innate immune system's sort of you, you've got two parts really. You've got your innate and adaptive. Mm-hmm. Your innate's the first barrier that protects you from from pathogens. Okay. Um, you know, that's your physical barriers, like your skin, but it's also these chemical barriers, which is more of what we work on, the biochemical barriers. Right. And and the other parts, once so once stuff's in bloodstream. Yeah. yeah then then once you detect the pathogen, you know, that's when it's up to your adaptive immune system, your your immune cells, the cellular-based response, yep. for them to come in and clear the infection. Yeah, cool. Now, one of the things I'm often very critical of is the, the names that bio people give things. I mean, <laughs> I mean, Sarah's stuff is a good example of this, you know, the way we name things. Terrible, terrible, Sarah. <laughs> But you work on something called Defensins. Yeah. I love oh, that name. That's, that's a good name, right? Straight to the point. Yeah. <laughs> they obviously defend us. That's what they do. There's no doubt. Tell <laughs> us about Defensins. Like, where are they in the body? What do they do? Yeah. So, so they're expressed in your epithelial cells, so lining your gut and lungs, um, but also in your skin. Mm-hmm. Um, and they're just these really small proteins, um, which bind to the outside of cells, to their membranes, and lies them open. Okay, mm. and and that and they're used to protect us. Yeah, yeah. So they're expressed by all plants and animals, um, just innately, so that yep. um, we can help keep pathogens at bay. Now, one of the things that we often don't think about, but when you say like the stomach lining and, and the the lungs, mm-hmm. I mean they're almost like external to the world, aren't they? A, yeah, exactly. In a sense, like like if you talked about my heart and my kidneys, clearly these are there's no external interaction. Yeah. But like my lungs are open to the air, as it were. Yeah, you know, you're, you're breathing in. Bacteria all, all the time. Crap, yeah. Something needs to be there to, to stop them from infecting you, and that's that's where the defensins come in. Defensins. <laughs> so, question on that then. Yeah. If if uh, you know when when the adaptive system kicks into gear, mm-hmm. is that because the defensins have failed? Not exactly. So the defensins actually they they play this double role. The first is to directly attack the pathogens, mm-hmm. but then when sort of the, the bacteria might be taking over a bit too much, they can actually signal the adaptive immune system okay. and say, hey, we need you Give to come in. Give us a yeah, hand. Give us a hand. Sure. Okay. Now, my understanding is not all defensins are created equally. <laughs> is this, this is true. Yeah? That's true, yeah. So our defensins, not too bad? Um, I mean, they've done well for us for, you know, millions of years. <laughs> We're still here. <laughs> Since the days of the dinosaurs. No, 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 no. That's, sorry, that's a different program. Um, no, they've done well for us for a long time. But you're looking at a particular type of defense and that is uh, the CPO. I almost said C3PO then. <laughs> I know. It's pretty close. It was close. <laughs> CPO8, no, CPO BD13. Yeah. Another great biological name. <laughs> it's cr- Crocodilus porosus beta defense in 13. Oh, ah, there we go. Yeah. Oh. We just call it croc. It's you call it croc. Just croc. And it comes from the Australian, croc- Australian <laughs> saltwater crocodile. Yeah. Dinosaur. Exactly. Yeah. Right. <laughs> I mean, see, I knew I'd bring dinosaurs in here sooner or later. Very good. So, what is it? I mean, I, I find crocodiles are amazing because the thing that and the thing that fascinates me not is that they're they're pretty ugly looking, they're pretty <laughs> gross, but but they haven't changed. No. In what fifty million years? Eighty-three million years. Eighty-three it's million. The first years. sentence of my paper. Wow! <laughs> Spoiler alert. Spoiler alert. <laughs> so, is it a published paper or is it a uh, one now. of these oh, wannabe yeah. ones? <laughs> so, so eighty-three million years, which means, in an evolutionary sense, we have some connectivity, right, to this this sort of system. To, to which system? To, to to the immune system. Of oh yeah, yeah. So I mean, throughout evolution. We've sort of, you know, yeah, spread, spread evolved yep. and we've spread out. Um, but we, we hold on to these defensins, you know. So if both crocodiles and humans have them, 
And because they're still similar, it sort of it makes you think that they're quite important. But yeah. if you know, eighty-three million years, they should have changed by now if we didn't need them. Yeah, but interesting. They're mm. still as they were when the dinosaurs has them. It seems. So <laughs> we've got dinosaur parts. We've got. Oh yeah, <laughs> sure. You heard it here first, folks. Mm. Uh, well, maybe. But so this, but this particular defence in the crocodile. I mean, what's special about it? Why are you studying this one in the crocodile of all the animals you could choose? Well, we first sort of looked into the crocodile because it lives in these microbial-rich environments. Yep. They get wounded all the time, right. they, they lose limbs in territorial disputes, and they rarely develop systemic infections. Hmm. So there's something about their innate immune system that's particularly good at holding these pathogens at bay. Um, and because, you know, we were experts in the defensins, why not look at their defensins and see what's interesting about them? Hey, do crocodiles get cancer, Sarah? That's a good question. <laughs> I don't know. It's interesting, isn't it? Because some of these animals, like, because there's, I think, is it, um, I want to say crayfish don't get cancer, I think. Is it lo- the lobsters, are, yeah. lobsters don't get... Some, something like that. They can yeah. live yeah, forever. Weird, unless... weird immune systems yeah. that can deal with some of this stuff. Elephants don't get cancer. Elephants don't get cancer. Yep. I they, did not know that. They have 50 copies of um, the guardian of the genome, P53. <laughs> 50 copies? So I don't know how many copies crocodiles have. But... Oh, I'm not sure. I'd have to look. <laughs> That's amazing. So, so you, you have to collect this from the crocodile. This is the part I think Chris KP is particularly interested in. Not <laughs> <laughs> he's in doing it. <laughs> but I'm interested in, in yeah, how it happens. I mean, if you're getting, presumably this is blood sampling. We, well, we cheat, really. So oh. we, we commonly express the protein in yeast using the genomic information from the crocodiles. Oh, okay. So, but we do have a sort of partnership with a crocodile farm called the Karana Crocodile Farm in oh, Yapoon, yes. Queensland. Yeah. And my supervisor has gone up and managed to take some samples and bring it back with him. Well, wow. so he's, he's like the Crocodile Dundee of, uh, of researchers, and you're a bunch of yeast wimps. Yeah. Um, okay. <laughs> I'm just, uh, just making it get the right. Um, but I, but the, the reason I was asking that is, well, it's partly, the, you know, it's because you need it, obviously, at some point. Yeah. But it's also... I'm not sure. I mean, crocodiles are tough. Oh, their skin's mm. solid, So there must yeah. be a spot somewhere where you can... I don't know. That's just... Uh, listeners can try and imagine this if they need to. We don't even have the answer right now. But it intrigues me to think that someone, A, you'd want to do it quickly, B, you want to do it correctly, and you need to know exactly where to go. I'm not sure where that spot is. Yeah, I think, I, I think with, like, snakes and lizards, they usually go for the belly scutes. So you okay. go for in between a scale on their yep. belly. So I assume it'd be similar for a crocodile? Yeah. <laughs> you get one get shot a, at this. <laughs> I'll just get a crocodile on its back, really. Yeah. You know. just, I'm sure you've got friends to help. Yeah. A little bit of comms advice for you, though, Scott. Like, when you're talking about this, you know, when you give talks and that, <laughs> the answer is the mouth, and you do it yourself. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you do it very carefully. Under the tongue, you know. <laughs> and you just use a standard razor, you know, like uh, it's handheld. Easy. Yeah. Um, huh. I think that will get you a lot more cred, especially <laughs> at conferences. If you can get a Photoshop photo of you doing that to a croc. I, I did that in my honours oh. year. Yeah. yeah, I surprised my supervisor in my final talk with a Photoshop of him as Steve Irwin with a crocodile. <laughs> I like, Very I like nice. it. Yeah, yeah, nice. Big shock to the had, department. Is he still around, your supervisor? Yeah, yeah. Because yeah, <laughs> Steve Irwin... Anyway. Yeah, didn't work out so well. You've got to be careful of those photos these days. They can get mm. in badly. So... When when you get this out, I mean, what what is what is specific? In, and you said like um, this this has all these roles because of the crocodile's environment. Mm-hmm. But you know, we're, we're facing off a lot of things at the moment. We're facing off um, viruses, bacteria, the Last of Us. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I mean, fungi. If you yeah. haven't seen it, people, it's it's not about viruses and bacteria. It's all about fungi. Yeah. I mean, do these defensins deal with all of that? Well, yeah, we've we've. In, in humans, there's about 30 defensins, and they're all tailored to their own sort of niche. Some are right. good at fighting bacteria, some viruses, and some fungi. And the one that I work on in the crocodile is actually particularly good at fighting off fungal infections. Right. Yeah. So in, in our studies, we've found that it's actually particularly good at fighting candida um, albicans, which is particularly uh, a big problem, especially in the immunocompromise. Mm. Yeah. And is it likely that we'll be... like? Will we be able to sort of reproduce this in a way that humans can utilize? I mean, I know with like with antibiotics, you know, we find it everywhere in nature, and then we optimize its performance and the way it's produced so that we can utilize it. Yeah. I mean, what does that look like in in this sort of space of the defensive from the crocodile? Yeah, there's there's two ways we could sort of approach it, and one is trying to engineer it as a direct therapeutic. You know, can we yep. administer this to a patient who's got this systemic infection? Uh, but the other one is using sort of attributes from these defensins and engineering. Um, more potent therapies. So a particularly interesting thing about the crocodile defense in is that it's pH regulated. Okay. So in a acidic environment, which you'd sort of find in a, an infection environment, mm. 
it's activated. But if it's in a basic environment, it's turned off. So in the blood, wow. where it's about pH 7, the defensin wouldn't work. But once it finds a site of infection, it would turn on and clear the infection. That's a wild How uh, nice adaptation. is that? <laughs> yeah, yeah. That's cool. So that's, because, yeah, sorry. That, that's no, something that, we haven't seen in the human defensin. So it's, it's something you could do. You could engineer a human defensin uh, to try and take on this ability potentially. Yeah. And there are other sort of... Yeah, uh, reptiles, animals that have this similar capability, or is the crocodile like I can think of a few things that like kind of live in the muck, as it were. Yeah. Um, the crocodile obviously does. Mm-hmm. Are there other? Are there, you know, does each one have its own set of defences, or there, is there a lot of overlap? Yeah. So there's a, there's a lot of overlap in closely related organisms. So I mean, a bunch of the crocodiles and alligators all have very similar mm. defences, but when you start to diverge throughout evolution, that's when you start picking up these different traits. Yeah. Look, it's it's wild stuff, Scott. I think um, you know, there's there's so much here to work on in terms of us finding new ways to fight some of these infections because it does seem as though we're getting a little bit behind. Yeah, definitely. And I mean, antimicrobial resistance is a is a big mm. problem. Yeah, and we hear, you know, I've heard recently about uh, was it phages? I think that's the other one that people are working on and mm-hmm. there's you know, enhancing our immune systems and and so forth. Check out where the crocodiles get cancer. So yep. very interesting there. <laughs> yes, yes. I mean, it makes sense, you know, if if they're, you know, been around for so long. They live a long time, yeah. too. Individuals live a long time. Yeah. So if they're not getting cancer, yeah, if they're not getting cancer after how long have crocodiles live for? Oh, I think like 50, 60 years. Yeah, they're, oh, they're wow. a long yeah. Maybe longer, yeah. probably. Yeah, they've got a dangerous lifestyle, too. Yeah. Compared to us. <laughs> it's pretty extreme. Compared to us, you know, you're just lurking around and someone bites off one of your arms. <laughs> you know, because of territorial disputes. You're freaking me out now. Stay over there. Yeah. <laughs> Scott, uh, how long until you submit your PhD? Uh, hopefully a couple of months. A couple yeah. of months? Not, not too far to go. So you're at the tail end? Yep. Tail end of the crocodile. I want to ask what <laughs> nice. I want to ask what year you're in, but I'm afraid if I ever ask people this and they say seven, you're a, you're a monster. It looks really you're bad. a monster. Like it's a monster. <laughs> yeah. You've got to say three or four. That's the, they're the only two answers. Well, it's four, so it's there not too go. bad. Yeah, 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 that's fine. Four's good. Four's <laughs> good. You, yeah. That's because when I was doing my PhD, there was a guy there. He was in like year eight, yeah. and I was like, dude, by the time you finish this, no one's going to remember the yeah. subject. Yeah. You know, so it'll, it'll be in a history book. Anyway, uh, good work. Uh, good luck with submitting uh, in the next couple of months. Thank and you. we hope to see uh, defensins coming out from, uh, you know, there'll be uh, you know, O the Crocodile or something mm-hmm. that'll be sold and, and um, get the special crocodile juice going and people will be fighting these infections much better. I'll work on it. Thanks so much, <laughs> Scott. Thank you. Scott Williams, PhD candidate from the Trobe University, folks. We're going to take a break for some important station announcements. And when we come back, we'll be talking to the DBCR. That's the Deputy Boss Chancellor of Research from Victoria University. Triple R. Welcome back, everybody. You're listening to Three Triple Arts. Einstein and Gogo. I'm Dr. Shane. In the studio with us now is Professor Andy Hill. Andy is the Deputy Vice Chancellor of Research and Impact at Victoria University. He's been on the show before. Welcome back, Andy. Thanks, Shane. Good to see you. It's good to see you. Now, um, I think I'm trying to remember the last time we had you on, you were at La Trobe. Before that, when we had you on, you were at Melbourne. That's correct, yes. <laughs> so next time you'll be at RMIT, then Swinburne, <laughs> Federation University, kick off to Deakin. Yeah. No. Yep, there's a, there's a lot of universities in Melbourne, so yeah. <laughs> it's a great city for universities. People forget, but we have a lot of great universities here. Now, um, first of all, let's talk a bit, little bit about your research before we, we talk about some of the stuff going on in your DBCR I role, DBC, yes, Deputy Vice Chancellor of Research and Impact role, because um, you work in degenerative brain disorders and so forth, don't you? You've done some real heavy stuff in that area over the years. That's right. I mean, that's been my sort of whole career working yeah. on brain diseases like Alzheimer's and Parkinson's, which, you know, affect our ageing population. And uh, um, they're commonly involved with proteins that change their shape and uh, deposit in the brain. So mm. I've just had a big interest in trying to develop new diagnostics for these diseases and also trying to understand what happens in the, in the brain when these proteins change their shape. Yeah. What, what are the sort of leading diagnostics at the moment in those areas? Um, there's a lot of blood-based diagnostics starting to, to come online, but, but mainly a lot of brain imaging and also cognitive testing. So there's a right. whole battery of tests that, um, you know, we can, we can uh, run through with, with patients. And, uh, but mm. unfortunately, they, they sort of only show a diagnosis when you've already got some symptoms. So yeah. I, I think the key to really um, tackling 
therapeutics for these diseases is diagnosing people a lot earlier because there's a lot of evidence now that the changes in the brain happen maybe 10 years before you start mm. to show signs. So if we can catch people at that period, we've got a better chance of using these uh, interventional therapies. Yeah, because some of these therapies tend to halt but not reverse, right? That, is that my understanding correct there? That's right, halt or slow down. And so, mm. you know, if we could slow it down so someone lives their natural lifespan yep. without too much cognitive impairment, that, that would be the ideal scenario, perhaps. What proportion of our society is ending up with these sort of this suite of diseases that cause this impairment? Uh, well, Parkinson's disease is the most common neurodegenerative disease after the age of 65. Mm. Um, and Alzheimer's disease, you know, we all know people in our families, perhaps, or, or friends or, or neighbours who are affected. And, and as you get older, the risk increases. So mm. over the age of 80 or 90, um, there's quite a significant proportion of, of people with, with a form of dementia. And you know, that's a function of us living a lot longer now than yep. we used to, say, 100 years ago. So it's one of these things we've got to try and tackle as a society because the numbers of cases are going to double by the year 2030. Wow. Yeah, it's, it's interesting to me. I often think about this from a sort of evolutionary point of view. And, you know, we were talking about long-lived crocodiles in yeah, the previous yeah. interview, but we weren't meant to live this long in an evolutionary sense. You know, we didn't evolve to live this long, really. That's kind of, And we're really pushing those boundaries now. People are living to 100. And there's a whole other stuff that, from an evolutionary perspective, didn't really affect us breeding and you know propagating our genes and so forth and now all of a sudden it's starting to hit us pretty hard that that's right and um i mean something will get us in the end i guess but yeah. um i guess what we want to try and achieve is just a a, a nice lifespan and you know as, mm. as healthy as possible yeah i get one of the things i, I learned probably about 10 years, years ago was that term health span uh, you know, and, and how important that was and how, you know, hopefully we were starting to move into the direction of focusing on people's health span, you know, keeping them healthy for as long as possible rather than just worrying about life years, you know, which are, which are you know, great if you live to 80, but if 40 of those years are really tough, you know, that's, that's not where we want to be. That's right. So I think we need to take a bit of a holistic approach. You know, it's mm. all about sort of, you know, healthy living, mindfulness, wellness. We talk about that a lot more now, I think, than we than we used to. So... Hopefully, if we start doing those things now, that, that might, might stand us in good stead as, yeah. as we all get older. See, even when you start talking about that, I start feeling guilty. <laughs> <laughs> hey, I went for a swim yesterday. I swam 10 laps yesterday. Spent the rest of the day recovering. Yeah. I know. <laughs> but it's yeah. all good. Now, um, so, and your labs are still out at La Trobe. That's right. So I moved from uh, La Trobe just over a year ago to, yep. to VU to take up the DVCRI mm. role there. Yeah. Um, but my labs stayed at, at La Trobe, and uh, I'm co-leading the lab now with a, with a great um, scientist, Dr. Leslie Cheng. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's quite quite a big job moving a laboratory, even across town. <laughs> um, you know, we've got a lot of yeah. PhD students and, yeah. and postdocs, and so I was really concerned about disrupting the work they were doing we've got a lot of long-term experiments so yeah. um luckily latrobe was was willing to let let us keep keep the lab there and yep. um, keep keep the projects going so it's been um it's been a bit of work doing things across town but um we you know we're publishing some nice work at the moment and our students are, are starting to complete so it's it's still going well that sounds great now you're over at victoria university now and just while we're talking about health i mean vu is about to have is it it will be Melbourne's largest hospital, right? Uh, the new Footscray Hospital. I believe so. It's one of it's the largest health health uh, project in, in the state at the moment. So yeah. over and, a one and a half billion dollars. And it's on the old. Now let me get. I'm not sure if I'm right here. It's on the old VU car park across the road, right? Is that? Is it that is correct? actually yes. So I never got to see the car park before I started working <laughs> there. Cool. But it's, uh, oh, you missed it out. <laughs> I parked there many times. See, I grew up in the west, so you know, have an affinity for. I was born at the old uh, Footscray Hospital. Okay. Yeah. Uh, not okay. Another great place. Need a new hospital. And that's great. The people there are great, but it's very old. Like, mm. it's infrastructure that is so old. And, you know, Sunshine Hospital's there, which is great. But um, but Footscray really needed a new hospital in the West of size and scale. And you guys are going to have this across the road. That's right. And and size and scale is it. It's, um, I've done a tour of the, the building mm. site. When you drive past it, it's, it Immense. looks so big. Yeah. When you actually walk around it, it is massive. Yeah. Um, mm. So it's going to be an incredible facility for, for the west of Melbourne. Um, and we're really pleased that obviously it's across the road from one of VU's main campuses, the Footscray campus. So yep. there's going to be a bridge linking the campus with, with the hospital. What about a flying fox? Could you put a flying fox across? Flying fox. That- for the PhD students. 
Oh, get it done. I'd also go on that. Yeah, just the because there's big buildings on either side of the road there. Like it's quite, it's quite full on. What you're going to have? They are. Maybe the flying fox should go into A and E, perhaps. And, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and if you miss the building, you're in the park. That's yeah. right. Nice. But it's not so bad. You yeah, know, some ponds down there, soft landing. Oh, it's a beautiful, beautiful part of Melbourne, actually. Um, yeah. Around Footscray Park. Yeah. Now, tell us about the uh, the labs out there, because you you were mentioning to me in the green room some great news that came out this week regarding the sustainability of the labs, which is not, uh, I have to say, sustainability and labs aren't often terms that are used together often enough. Sure. So this actually relates to, to uh, the lab that I'm, I'm running, co-running at uh, La Trobe, where, and this is a bit of a COVID project. We, um, um, you know, we weren't able to access the labs as much. Mm. And so um, I had a great postdoc in the lab who was really passionate about sustainability. And so we started this looking at how sustainable our lab practices were. And we, we came across uh, an organisation in the US that's been running for about 10 years called My Green Lab. And mm-hmm. they run a certification program where you can um, undergo some education, training. They survey you on your practices and um, they tell you how sustainable you are as, as a laboratory. And I think that's really important because labs use about 10 times as much energy as a normal office space, right. mm. about yep. five times as much water, um, and globally, I think over five and a half million tonnes of plastic waste is generated by yep. labs. So it's it's a massive global problem. Mm. So a couple of years ago, we went through the certification process, and we became the first laboratory to be certified green level, um, which is the top level. Very proud of that. Yep. Labs And this was a lot of work across the university. We had procurement, we had facilities, we had all different areas of the university helping us um, change some of our practices, monitor our energy usage. And then just yesterday, we um, got the results of our recertification. We have to do this every two years. I didn't quite realise at the time, but yeah. we need to do this every two years. That's a good thing, though, because people yeah. slack off otherwise, right? And they Excellent thing. Yeah, yeah. And we get new people in the lab coming in. They train yep. up and they understand the ways that we work to, to help yep. with sustainability. So we just heard yesterday we'd been recertified at the same level. So, That's um, great. So this is something I very much want to implement at, at VU, and I know other labs at, at La Trobe, for instance, are, are adopting this as well. So um, I, th- I think it's something we need to think about. There's a, yeah. a lot of waste that's generated in labs, and um, even simple things like, do we need to keep that machine on overnight? Yeah. So yeah. It, it, it was some of the really basic, easy things actually you know, once, made a big you know, difference. Andy, once you've completely sorted that VU, so let's say by June, um, <laughs> <laughs> 2027. You know, if you want to put your underwear on the outside, you can start doing it at the hospital too, because hospitals have extraordinary amounts of waste. Yeah, that's 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 a really big problem, right? Yeah. And, yeah. it's, and I don't think we can underestimate just small things, mm. like the turning off of, yeah. of things that you don't need. Yeah, can and food, food waste, all sorts of food waste. waste like it's yep. a, you know, there's a lot there that we could do you know, so much better. I've always had the idea that the food's so bad in most hospitals because it helps you leave. Yeah, like, I'm going to leave. I can't eat this anymore. I'm getting out. And it encourages you to get better and leave. Um, I'm not sure that is actually scientifically valid position, but, but but there's a lot of waste. There's a lot of waste. And I think um, – and, Sarah, how's your lab looking? Well, it's really got me thinking about it <laughs> because, you know, we do a lot of tissue culture yeah, and other yeah. things using sterile equipment and um, items, and there's so much plastic waste because you're constantly opening up single-use yep. things and putting it straight in the bin, and it has to go into a biohazard bin. So I was just wondering how you said you changed some practices, and I was just wondering in, in terms of things like that, single-use plastic items, were you able to recycle the soft plastic from those single-use items? What sort of implementations could you add? So that's a really good point. We do a lot of tissue culture as well, and, and I think that's what spurred us off because you're always aware of all those things you're throwing mm. away. And I think we can't avoid throwing certain things away because of the biohazardous nature of, of them. But say you've got a, a plastic pipette and you know the plastic paper sleeve on the outside, mm. that doesn't need to go in a biohazard bin. That can go in a recycling bin. So that was an example of taking something, and sometimes you're using 10 or 20 of those at a time. Oh, every five minutes. Every five minutes. <laughs> so, mm. so we take those, we put them in a re- recycling bin rather than throwing them in, in the um, biohazard bin. Um, and just being aware of, of how much plastic waste we're generating, um, even the little weigh boats that you mm. um, weigh your chemicals out on, we moved to using paper ones. Mm. So just 
little things like that, I think, I think are what, what we, uh, we, we did to, to get certified. Yeah. I remember uh, I, I used to work at a different university, and uh, one of the things that I was pushing for at one stage was something I'd heard some institutions internationally were doing, which was to essentially put like a, a meter on the outside of every building with some you know, big red digits indicating how much energy was being used and how that factored into what should be used in a building that size. I mean, when, you, when you're doing things at VU, it'd be good that visibility of, hey, this building's great. This, this is one mm. we're proud of. This is an example of what we should be doing as a society, not just a university, but as a society. You know, is, is there stuff like that in the works, do you think, Andy? Yeah, so we have a net zero plan at, at VU, and there, you know, we don't, while we don't have those sort of signs mm. on the outside mm. with, with the numbers, there's a lot of internal data that we are collecting around right. energy usage, um, trying to use renewable energy sources, um, even things like procurement, sort of talking to our suppliers about, you know, um, the way that they can supply goods in a, in a sustainable way. So I think there's a lot of work that goes on in the background that, that people don't always realise. But I think mm. it's, it's good to make people aware so that they, they know the kinds of things we need to do to sort of, you know, increase our sustainability practices. Yeah. Now, before we let you go, tell us, how has your life changed now that you're, you've gone from full professor at, out at La Trobe, probably a lot of teaching, everything going on there, Deputy Vice-Chancellor? I mean, what's the day like? The day's very busy, but I love the job. It's, I feel it's a real privilege to uh, represent research for a whole organisation. And, you know, well, I've got a real passion for my own research. I'm, mm. I'm trying to keep that going, and it is a yep. bit of a juggle sometimes. But um, oh, it's a wonderful position to just hear about the great research that's going on, help researchers. I think coming out of COVID, you know, I couldn't think it's it's the worst time to be, say, a PhD student or an ECR because mm. of the impacts that that's had. So trying to help people, um, you know, get things back on track and, and actually use some of the opportunities that, that have arisen out of out of the pandemic as well. So yeah. um, I, it's a great job and, and I really enjoy it. Yeah, that's cool. I, I remember years ago when we were talking in the green room, but when I was running a, a, a centre myself at Melbourne, I recruited quite a few people from um, from VU actually and great people. And there's still those people are still there actually, still uh, like out lived me um, because Good. of excellence not of because of age <laughs> oh great but what are there what are the sort of top things top three or four things um vu's doing in the research sense at the moment so uh about six months ago we launched our new research and impact plan and that was another thing that attracted me to this role the, the word impact yeah. in the uh in the uh, job title yeah, because, so it matters so it matters and yeah. um you know, I think we talk a lot about research impact, what it means, and sort of mm. I, th I think it's around trying to focus our research on, on having a difference in the real world. So yep. um, VU's got a, a, quite a broad range of, of uh, research uh, across a number of areas, and, and in our new research plan, we call out sort of, sort of five areas that, that we do focus on, yep. and there's things like health, sport, and well-being. Yep. So we've got quite a lot of research in, in that area, which will also really intensify when the new Footscray Hospital yeah. comes online as well as we can work with clinicians. Because you guys uh, are huge in sport, aren't you? Like, yeah. Now, correct me if I'm wrong, when I drive past the Western Oval, there's always a big VU sign up there, isn't there? That's right. Yeah, you guys have a strong association with the Footscray Football Club. We do, with yeah. the Western Bulldogs. West, we have sorry, a, so you can see how old I am. Oh, in the West. Do better than that. <laughs> I grew up in the West, sorry. Uh, shook a can for him once. Hey, give me some credit. Um, but, yeah, you have that strong association with the with the team. No, we do very much, and we have some great research happening mm. between um, researchers at VU and, and the Western Bulldogs. We've got a whole research program that yep. um, we've got PhD students. We have students doing internships um, across a number of areas from sort of sports analytics to, yeah. um, uh, to physiotherapy. Mm. And so it's a, it's a great example of working with a, a partner that's part of your community as yeah. well. So it's very community-driven as well for you. Being in the west of Melbourne, we've got a lot of great partners on our doorstep that we engage with, and yeah. uh, that drives a lot of the research. And it's easy to see the impact you're having when yeah. it's, it's on your doorstep yeah. at the I same love time. that. I, I, I did an event with, with you guys um, a few years back now, and it was with the people who were doing the traffic management research. And I thought that was fascinating. Mm. We hadn't had any traffic management people on the show here. And they were saying how in Footscray, because of the growth of the area, um, they have these schemes where normally they can talk about event traffic, which is, you know, a rare thing, or normal traffic. But they said because of the growth in the area and how exciting everything was there, it was kind of like event traffic all the time wow. to model it. Huh. Yeah. And yes. I thought, wow, you know, this was – I hadn't heard this. I hadn't heard this from any other – you know, you have the group of eight universities. They're all going, you know, lots of money. But, um, but this is local stuff that really matters to the local community. 
That's right. And we also have, you know, campuses in, in Sunshine mm. and, uh, and Werribee as well. Um, so there's some really nice work happening on the Werribee campus uh, to do with uh, the circular economy using recycled right. materials and, and building products, for instance. We've, we've actually got a road on our Werribee campus that's built out of recycled uh, materials. Oh, wow. And it's being used as a, nice. you know, a testing, uh, testing oh, the site. Whole road, the whole road is made recycled. The, the road on the campus, yeah. yeah. So, oh, that's um, cool. So, so there's, uh, and I think these things are really relevant. Again, it comes back to that sustainability as, as well. Of, of, mm. you know, uh, can we reuse uh, food waste as packing materials? That's yep. another big area for us as well. So, um, we've got a, a big health and sport focus around Footscray Park. We've got the circular economy work uh, in in Werribee. So, we've got these area foci as well. That that's uh, that makes us quite distinctive. That's wild stuff. Andy, I think uh, they're very lucky to have you there. Uh, we've, we've seen you do some great work over the years at uh, La Trobe and at Melbourne. And I remember, I think last time I bumped into you on the campus was at Bio 21. Must That's have been. right. That's quite a while <laughs> it's ago. Been a while. Oh, yeah, sorry. A while ago. <laughs> Probably 15 years ago. Um, but look, good luck in, in the role. I know you're relatively new to it, but it's exciting. And I think uh, VU has such a huge future ahead of it. And it just the population of the West is just exploding. And having a, a good quality university there for students coming through is really important. No, it sure is. And, uh, yeah, very looking forward to the future. Excellent. Professor Andy Hill, Deputy Vice-Chancellor Research and Impact, Victoria University. Thanks for coming on Triple R. Thanks for having me. Folks, we're going to take a short break for some station announcements. And when we come back, Chris KP is going to teach us something. Triple R. Now, a few minutes left of Einstein and Gergo. Chris? You know... Listeners will be shocked to hear that um, that this program uh, and the, the detailed content of the program is partly uh, planned with great detail in advance <laughs> and partly Which not. Which, sorry, well, Which you know, part? the guests are all lined up oh, very yeah, carefully. Yeah. You know, we know yeah. all about that. Yeah, um, true. But what I but and usually that's it is what it is. You know, whatevs. But there's a joy in this today because we've talked about how long crocodiles live for. We've talked about the fact that we're living longer than evolutionarily we really need to or should and that produces its own problems, etc. And I, and I, as it happened, wanted to talk about life oh. and the act of living. Um, and, I, you know, I could get pretty heavy with this and ask you what the meaning of life is, but I won't because what a stupid question um, or, or be attempting. Um, but what is life is an interesting question. Check this out. NASA, by the way, defines life as a self-sustaining chemical system capable of Darwinian evolution. Oh. Yes. Which, which is essentially saying, it's, yeah, you need to, stuff needs to be replicating and maintaining itself, but it, it can evolves. also shift and change over time depending on environmental conditions. So fire doesn't meet that condition. Well, exactly. Yeah, interesting. Yeah, it is a really interesting definition, mm. actually. Um, I quite like it. Uh, I, and I like the idea of, um, of so self-sustaining also suggests order. And this is the other thing about life. This is You can put all the ingredients of life together in a dish if you want. You can even make them interact chemically to some extent, but it's not life, if you like. They need to actually be able to order themselves in the right way and maintain that order, etc. which makes you think, well, what's ageing? Uh, and I, I would suggest, having poked around a bit on the internet, that ageing is basically when that disorder starts to kick in. Right. You start losing order when entropy kicks in, that's the ageing process, and we start to see it. And this is, if you think about any human being or any animal at all, actually, pretty much, that's the thing you notice as we start to get uh, older, is things get a bit less ordered and a bit less reliable and a bit less good at what they used to be good at doing, and gradually mm. um, the inevitable uh, the, uh, the, yeah. happens. Well, I notice you're looking at me 80% of the time and Sarah 20% of the time right now. Well, it's because I think she's less less qualified in being old. <laughs> How was that? Did you like that? That's good. Zing. Yeah. <laughs> you got a lot to learn about being old and crap. Um, <laughs> um, and, I, and I did then also look up a definition of death, by the way, which is uh, defined by at least one person as the irreversible cessation of biological functions that sustain an organism, hmm. which I think is intriguing too. Anyway, it got me thinking um, because, okay, so the oldest human, and you touched on this earlier, the oldest human being ever um, is, uh, was it, died at 122 Right. The current oldest human being is 116. Um, those are big numbers for humans, but yeah. whoop-de-doo, frankly, um, because humans are not that interesting when it comes to long-livedness. The longest-living mammals on the planet are bowhead whales. Right. And they can live to well over 100 years, possibly 200 years. You know, one of the ways they know this is because they found living whales, living bowhead whales, with um, uh, um, harpoon tips stuck in them that people stopped using over 100 years ago. Well, wow. So, yeah. A, 
we can tell the age and also be the way I was going, yeah, yeah, the guy who shot me with this, long dead. <laughs> where are you now, buddy? I'm still freaking here. I love that. I think yeah. that's great. Uh, there was an interesting study done some years ago on uh, uh, Greenland sharks. They're looking at eye tissue of Greenland sharks, but, of course, they had to get close to Greenland sharks, which live really deep in really cold yeah. water, creepy animals. Um, and the they, they found one shark there that was at least 272 years old. Oh. 272, wow. yeah. They reckon looking at the chemistry, the biochemistry, they could, they could easily live to be, you know, another couple hundred years. They haven't found proof of that, but again, there's no reason why these animals yeah. can't live to four, five hundred years old potentially, which is extraordinary. Um, but it gets even more crazy than that because our choice of life as, as mammals, our choice of life is we've essentially gone for, you know, fur or hair coverings, we've gone for warm blood, we've gone for... You know, choices of, of immunology and of reproduction um, that, you know, they're perfectly okay. They function, but they're just choices. There are many other choices out there that, that animals in particular make. So, let me draw your attention then, if I, if I can, to, uh, well, firstly, the rock eye fish uh, easily lives to over a couple hundred years. It's just a little rock eye fish. Hmm. But it doesn't, it, you know, a couple hundred years, no problem at all. So, our a human life will come and go, you know, three times yeah. as one of these individuals is existing. But they're not weird enough. Clams. Clams are much more weird. Uh, you can easily get a, uh, a, an Icelandic clam that's 500 years old. Whoa. Yeah. It's a totally different yeah. kind of life. I want to come back as a clam. Really? Well, no stress. <laughs> it is. A, well, that's you my thought. You sit there, open clothes each day. What? That's nutrients. what I thought. I'm thinking, it's not a bad life, is it? Yeah. It's not a bad... I mean, you know, I'm sure they don't think that. Yeah. <laughs> Because they don't think, think like us, you know. Yeah, this is the other problem with this kind of this kind of work is that you're constantly sort of going, "I'm not. I've got to stop thinking about it like a human, but I can't because I'm bound human. by my humanness." Yeah. Um, uh, sponges are, um, are weird and live for ages as well. There are sponges that have been estimated at well over ten thousand years old. Whoa. But this got me to a really interesting place because I'm pushing myself down this research further and further and further, going, "Okay, where does it end?" And the point is, it's points where it doesn't. So deal with this. There's a jellyfish. Yeah. The common name of the jellyfish. This common. This jellyfish, um, uh, which is Pteritopsis dornii, um, also known as the immortal jellyfish, because it's essentially or can be immortal. So basically, you can eat them. I mean, things do. I mean, I'm not mm. you want it or not, but they are predated upon. Um, but they can, if in the right conditions, they can survive forever. Because basically, they just send up polyps of themselves, and that's it. We just keep doing this. Just keep doing it. For as long as you've got. They basically don't die unless something actively kills them. They don't seem to get disease. They just hang in there for ages, which made me then wonder, are they actually alive? Oh, interesting. If you don't <laughs> die by natural causes, are you alive? God. And I haven't got an answer to that, by the way, but there are animals, yeah, jellyfish, hydra, which are much better at being alive than we are. And do it for a hell of a lot longer. Well, there we go. There we go. But do they have a triple R? Folks, uh, <laughs> thanks for listening today. It is April Amnesty. If you haven't already subscribed, please do it. It is very important. The triple R runs on your fuel or your cash. Uh, so if you want to support us, we would very much appreciate you doing that. Get online and do it. Thank you, Dr. Sarah, for coming in. Thanks good for having you. me. Chris KP, good always as always. A pleasure. Yeah, thanks, mate. I'm Doug Shane, folks. We're going to hand over now to the team from Eat It. Remember, science is everywhere. Have a great Sunday. We'll see you next week. Hi. This is Dr. Shane. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Triple R's Einstein Agogo, a weekly radio show exploring the wonders of science and its impact on the world. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Sunday. Hope you enjoyed the podcast and feel free to get in touch with us via Einstein Agogo's Twitter account or Facebook page.